You're listening to The Drew Marshall Show, Canada's most listened to spiritual talkback program. Well, joining us today is two-time heavyweight boxing champion of the world, preacher, rancher, and king of the grills. Now, George, how did they used to introduce you to the crowd at Madison Square Gardens? Big George Foreman. <laughs> <laughs> After I've done everything to lose every pound off my body, I'd yeah. like, Big, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, he's just released uh, his latest book, God in My Corner, a spiritual memoir, of course, it's available on Amazon and Chapters and uh, online at georgeforeman.com. You were just here in Toronto a couple of months ago with uh, the big Donald Trump and Anthony Robbins. Yeah, we stopped through there and had a great time. Couldn't believe the crowd. It was good. good turnout, was it? Great turnout. Lots of real estate folks. Yeah, everybody's out trying to, uh, trying to find that one key to being success, and especially in real estate. And all the other guys were giving them a good idea of how to pursue it. And I'd tell them how to get up off the canvas when you hate when Bankers turn you down. Nice. Brace your pants off and say, I can go one more round. <laughs> nice. That's good. Uh, listen, uh, George, what's the most concise way to describe Donald Trump? Uh, let me see. Big Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Okay. He is big from within, too. Yeah, but he, he starts inside. He certainly is not as big as Anthony Robbins. That guy's like, what, 6'10? Can you believe that? He's a freak. He's a giant. Yeah. He is a giant. But I meant uh, Donald Trump bigness is something, you know, more than obvious. It's something he's got going for himself. From, it starts from within. He's got an aura about him. Yeah, he's, he's one great guy. And I've known him throughout the years. You know what? He's consistent. He never changes. Really? I like that about him. You know, the first time I ever came across someone with an aura was when I uh, interviewed James Brown a year and a half ago after his concert. Isn't that something? Oh, my goodness. Oh, he was magic. He got a little something going on. I don't know what it is. It but was magic. I remember that. And I, I remember, uh, of course, meeting James Brown, of course, but I met the uh, Muhammad Ali Yeah. in the early years. Yeah. And that's the same felt way I felt about him, a horse start beating fast. He got the same stuff. Mm-hmm. So there's some great, we've run into some great, great, great guys. January 10th, 1949, you're born to J.D. and Nancy Foreman in Marshall, Texas. Marshall, Texas, of all place. Now, that's the place where they based the movie on, right? Yeah, that's right. We Are Marshall. Yeah, that's right. There's been some good... I've never seen the movie, but it was based right out of here from the college there. And you're still living in that area, right? I keep the, a ranch here, of course. Marshall still hasn't grown about 25,000 uh, population. So I go from Houston to Marshall, where I am now. And it's about 200 miles east of Houston. I spend my time on the ranch when I can. I still love it down here, the smell of grass. Oh, yeah. And a lot of dirt. I have a big dirt farm. A big? <laughs> <laughs> we get so hot here, and all you see is dirt. Uh, you got to tell us about those running horses. What the heck? I saw the video on your website. That that That's craziness. <laughs> yeah, I love the horses. Uh, and they're gated horses. Gated, course. yeah. They're gated horses, and I get on them and ride them and One train them to go to a certain speed and... And they don't buck you because I started off early in life wanting a spirited horse, but because I was boxing, I couldn't afford to fall. So I had to get horses that move fast and that didn't buck or, or bump you, hurt mm. your back. And that's how I got into them. 
And you got a whole bunch of birds at the ranch. Oh, I got birds, ostriches, emus, you name them. And, of course, the everyday chicken. The everyday chicken. Everyday chicken. That'd be a good name for a boxer. The everyday chicken. <laughs> uh, some of us would have been better off everyday chicken, too. <laughs> when I was living in Australia, the birds there are gorgeous. Oh, Australia, that's the land of the birds. I got a lot of them. Do you have any kookaburros at the ranch? Ah, uh, no, 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 not yet. But okay. uh, I got a lot of the parrots, of course. Yeah, yeah. And that was the thing about Australia. You would see them flying in, flocks of these beautiful birds. Oh, yeah. Here we pay mints for them, and they're just going free. I know. I was I was a uh, pastor at a church now up in the Blue Mountains outside of Sydney. Uh, and the first time I ever got up to speak, I actually had to wait while the uh, cockatoos shut up out in the trees. Yeah, can you believe that? It was like the most amazing thing. See, you were, you were, you saw something really actually wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> but waiting for them to stop talking. Or that. Oh, my goodness. Excuse me, I'm trying to preach. Shut <laughs> up. Yeah. Yeah. One of seven children. Where were you in the birth order? I'm number five. Yeah, number five of seven kids. Uh, I got, there were three brothers. Yeah. No, there were four of us and three sisters. Right. Four boys and three sisters, I'm sorry. You must have gotten into a few scraps with your brothers. Oh. Uh, you know, no, the brother only had one brother older, and uh, of course he was always more mature. But the younger kids, I was pretty much in control of them because I had to make sure they stay on the right road. Yeah. What really took me into boxing was in the long run. I woke up and you know trying to be a little thug out there and decided, look, you're responsible for raising these boys. I'd be a role model for them. I went to work and started trying to earn money for those kids, those last two boys, so they can get a high education. If you know what I mean. Yeah, good for you. Now, you went from the Job Corps to the 1968 Olympic gold medal to heavyweight champion twice. Ah. What a story you have. I mean, seriously. Yeah, but that's it. You know, you, 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 you start striving to be successful, and that's all you want. And, of course, I got that gold medal. I only had 25 boxing matches, and everybody said, you know, you don't have enough experience. But then after I got the gold medal, you want to be heavyweight champ of the world. Three and a half years later, I'm heavyweight champ of the world, beating Joe Frazier and Everything I ever dreamed of was right at my doorstep. There wasn't anything after a few years I couldn't buy, so I found that real quick. Hmm. Left boxing, of course, in 77 when I found out there was something better and bigger. My calling from God, I left boxing for 10 years and said I would never return. Done with it. Never even made a fit for 10 years. I didn't even shadow box. Really? Went strictly into uh, being a minister and an evangelist at the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ and had a pretty contented life, and I looked up one day, and there it was. I was broke. Broke. I was, had a youth center, a lot of kids to take care of, and I had to go back to boxing to take care of my family. And to keep the youth center going. Yep, and uh, that youth center, you know, you'd be surprised. I started this program so I could keep kids off the street. And uh, the, as soon as I opened the place, parents were just throwing their kids there. I couldn't get rid of them. <laughs> and then I, and I was out of money. Man, I'm going to speak. I went all over the country trying to speak to raise money. And then all of a sudden I realized, you know, when some people were raising money for me, I said, you know what? I know how to get money. I'm going to be heavyweight champ of the world again. That's how I'm going to get money. That'll work. For my youth center. And I went back to, uh, went back to work in 1987 to be uh, the heavyweight champ of the world to get money for my youth center. Little did I know it would all work out just fine. And I'd become a heavyweight champ of the world again. Hmm. The oldest man ever at the age of 45. Here's your list. Joe Lewis. Rocky Marciano, Jack Johnson, Muhammad Ali, Joe Fraser, Jack Dempsey, Mike Tyson, Sonny Liston, Floyd Patterson, Evander Holyfield. 
Why didn't you put your own name on the top of your own top ten list? All I had going for me was uh, ambition. And sometimes these guys would be, they would uh, frighten me in the ring, and I'd close my eyes, and I'd, when I would look up, they'd be on the canvas. <laughs> I just had this big punch. I wasn't at anything. That was the first time around. The second time around, I was just strictly interested in selling myself, my religion, and boxing, and I wasn't the best. I'll never be the best boxer. I always say that the best boxer I'd ever seen with eyes and film was Joe Lewis, a, a phenomenon, that's all. Yeah. Never seen anything like it. Rocky Marciano, he retired undefeated as the heavyweight champ of the world. We will never see anything like that again. And, you know, there were some of these great names. So you're in the ring, you're fighting for the championship of the world. You win it, and these names, names like John L. Sullivan, Jack Dempsey, Joe Lewis, they all just flood your mind. And so when I got in the ring and won it even the second time, my name still didn't flood my mind. <laughs> it was all those great names. Muhammad Ali, I consider him the greatest man that I'd ever met to be a boxer. Hmm. Not the best boxer. I mean, boxing is too small for him. He was the greatest man. I mean, most people would go out, even writers would go out and visit him and become better writers. Really? He, he was just an inspiration. But you had uh, had actually called yourself sort of too mean and too crude back in the early days. Yeah, too crude. That's what I mean. I just closed my eyes and they'd be on the canvas. Wow. I mean, I'd, I'd reach back to San Francisco to throw the hardest punch I could. But you weren't mean like Tyson. Uh, first off, the first time around, I was meaner than Tyson. Really? Tyson was just an imitation, believe me. I mean, uh, as a matter of fact, when things got tough for Tyson, he would bite them. <laughs> Not me. I would hit him. Yeah. And I was really a tough guy. I really was. And I understood some of what Tyson was going through, but uh, I was a, I was really a mean guy. Well, we're talking with George Foreman here. Zaire Africa, 1974, the rumble in the jungle. What would be your greatest memory of that whole crazy, crazy scene? Mm, I, you know, in Africa, I, I, I was undefeated, heavyweight champion of the world, beating everyone who, who was supposedly good. I was easily going to beat Muhammad Ali because he had lost to the two guys I'd really devastated. I'm on the canvas listening to the referee count. One, two, I couldn't believe it. Three, four. So at the count of eight, I jumped up. I was no longer champion of the world. Just sitting there listening on that canvas, listening to the referee count. That stays with you. And it stayed with me until, uh, of course, in 1994 when I recaptured the title. I was 45. And I heard the referee counting Michael Moore, one, two, and I fell on my knees. Thank God. Wow. I knew he wasn't getting up. You know, three years after the Rumble in the Jungle, 1977, after you lost to Jimmy Young, what the heck happened in the dressing room afterwards? Oh, that's when business picked up, really. I, my whole life changed and probably hasn't changed since. Went back to the dressing room to cool off. Just like you do, you know, when you really get hot in a boxing ring, I don't 12 rounds, so you're not supposed to sit down right quick, cool your body off like a racehorse. And I'm thinking, you got everything, you don't worry about that boxing match, you could go home retire, or to your ranch right now, retire and die. And it sneaked into my conversation, I couldn't get it out, you're going to die. And I realized I was about to die in a dirty old, smelly, nasty dressing room. And I had all these homes and mansions all over the country, and I was going to die in a dressing room. I fought for my life and lost. I heard a voice say, you believe in God, why are you afraid to die? I was scared. Man, was I scared. I tried to fight it off, and I realized I started losing my life in that dressing room. I fought, fought, and lost. I tried to make a deal. I said, well, God, I believe in you, but not enough before I could say another word. I was out of this life, over my head. 
under my feet was nothing in a dumpy out of sorrow. And I, I just panicked. Hmm. I thought about, I talked about God, but I just didn't believe in religion. I just didn't believe in religion. That everybody that came forth with it was poor or something. My parents were poor. They talked about religion. I got mad. I said, I don't care if this is death. I still believe there's a God. When I said that, I was alive in the dressing room again. A big hand that reached into nothing and rescued me, and I was alive in that dressing room. And as I lay there, uh, I told my doctor to move his hand because the thorns on his head are making him bleed. And I told my masseur to move his hand. He's bleeding where they crucified him. And I started screaming then, and I haven't stopped, that Jesus Christ was coming alive in me. That's what happened. <laughs> Man, well, the folks around you must have thought you were nuts. They did. They strapped me down <laughs> to a bed, rushed me to intensive care. And then I'm sitting in the hospital listening. And the button go boom, boom, boom. I realize if it, goes, if it goes flat, that means I'm gone for real. And my life has never been the same because I left out of there. It doesn't matter what people said about me. I knew that was a God and that Jesus Christ existed. And I, I just couldn't, I didn't know what to do. I didn't shadow box. I didn't make a fist. For 10 years, I dedicated my life to, to being an evangelist. How well do I remember when Jesus brought me through? I walked and prayed a night or two. I said, Lord, I want you take, take and me. use me. That's all that I can do. I give my life to Jesus. What about you? What about you? Isn't that something? Isn't that something? My mother, I was going through a trial, and she read me that little song. She sang it to me, and I asked, can I write it down? And I wrote it down. I've never forgotten it. And I've had a trial or two in my, in my life, even after I found my my good religion and everything. I've had some trials, but God has always brought me through. I've looked to Jesus for the answers. And I, I, I didn't know that was a Jesus that, you know, I did, just didn't know that it exists. You hear about people talk about God, everybody does. But Jesus Christ being alive, you know, the 2,000 years ago, we actually had a chance to have a visit with the Son of God. That just touched me. Well, I thought it was just jokes. Well, George, if, if you had that good of a mother, how did you get into being a mugger and a street brawler at 15, you know, going from one cheap bottle of wine to another? <laughs> and that's a big story people ask me. My mother stayed on me all the time, but I was always so hungry and so poor. My mother got sick as a early teenager. She got sick tuberculosis as a matter of fact and she was taken away for about two years and nobody loved me like my mother and I was out on my own nobody my sisters and brothers couldn't control me and that's the missing element there and by the time she was back home with me and that's when I realized I better do something with my life and I joined the job corps mugging and thug a thug out there and I realized one day as I was running from the police I'd crawl under the house to hide and I thought the dogs were going to sniff me out. I covered myself from head to toe with slop from the sewage. Oh. Under the house, a busted sewage pipe. And I thought the police, the dogs were going to sniff me out so they wouldn't be able to smell this. And I realized my mother, she never, she said there had never been a thief in the family. And uh, a liar, uh, uh, no, a liar was still. And she was so proud of that. And there I was, a thief, running from the cops, hiding from dogs. I crawled from under that house hmm. about 16. I never stole a thing uh, again. I joined the Job Corps. Heard a commercial. The great football player, Jimmy Brown and Jenny United, said, if you're looking for a second chance, join, join the Job Corps. Hmm. That was my turning point. Other than your mother, George, who had the greatest spiritual impact in your life? You know, my mother told me a lot. 
she was the only one that spoke about religion, and she was like I said, there was always so many things missing out of her life. I wasn't gonna hear that anything from someone who didn't have anything, and from that point on, nobody, nobody made much an impression on me. Really, no one did. Hmm. You know, you meet people, and of course, school teachers would tell me to be a better person, but not for fear of God. But well, that was it. What about these days, George? Oh, there are so many people I love, and I've met so many people. Mostly people without names. When I say without names, not famous people. Yeah. Because you meet ministers around the country who, who've been doing this forever. They've seen everything. They've seen it come. They've seen things go, and they stand like oaks. And they've had to pretty much give me little words. I was in a, a bookstore once, and a young man who was selling—not a young man—he was selling books in the stores, and he told me something. Because he could see I'd once had it all and had nothing. He said, you know, my favorite sermon, George, my favorite scripture is the first psalm. Blessed is the man walking out in the council of that ungodly. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, sometimes it doesn't matter what you have, all of these things. But if you just make sure that you don't take advice from bad people, that's a lot. I said, really? I learned that. It became my favorite scripture. Just the man I met. Folks, we are speaking with George Foreman. You know, all of my friends, when they found out I was interviewing George Foreman, either said, hey, do you have his grill? It's amazing. Or, or they said, hey, ask him for a grill or see if you can get a grill for me. Or so. What is with this grill of yours? I mean, I mean, fat reducer grilling machine. <laughs> I'm so proud of that. And it, it, it's intimidating as well because I spent all those years becoming heavyweight champ of the world. And I'm walking the streets in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, and there was a group of Head Start kids, six years uh, or less, walking with their teachers, and the teachers insisted I stop and give them a little talk, and the teachers were introducing me. Here he is, the heavyweight champ of the world. He was an Olympic gold medalist. And one little kid looked up at me and said, that's the cooking man. <laughs> he didn't even know me. <laughs> the, the grill had taken over my life. Commercials about the grill. You know what? If I had to... If boxing had to move away and take a uh, take the second uh, take second floor, I'm glad the big house belongs to the grill because it's been great. Well, but hold on, hold on. Seriously, like a grill is a grill is a grill, right? Uh-huh. Like, what's so different about this grill? I, I don't want to well, get into you know, a huge commercial here. It's got the patented slant. It's slanted. You can use this thing winter, summer, in your home. You go inside, and you still get the, if you want to do some barbecuing and grilling. You just turn it on, and all the grease kind of channel itself away from the food, falls in a drip tray, and you put it in the trash, and it doesn't have to go inside of you, and it's so easy to clean up. It's made a chef out of me. I can do anything at any time. My wife, she has to almost beg me, can I fix you something, George? Because I run <laughs> to the grill to do everything. And you've sold $10 million. Oh, no, 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 $110 million. No, come on. Yes. Really? We made we made $101 million, uh about a almost six months ago. Oh, my goodness. Worldwide, the grill is the most successful electric appliance in the history of uh, England. Phone call for George, called Mrs. George. She tossed the phone to Big George, who tossed it to 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 George. Wrong number. <laughs> now, that's an excerpt from a fun little children's book called Let George Do It. We wrote a little kid book about the George family. That's funny. Uh, we're all named George, that's for sure. Ten kids, five boys, five girls. The boys are all named George. Uh, like, what was what was behind that thinking? Uh, they say if you're going to be a successful boxer, make preparation for memory loss because you're going to get hit on the head a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that. I tell people, if you let Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, 
Ken Nord and Evander Holyfield hit you on the head, you think about I just think how many names you're going to remember. Yeah, exactly. Well, with ten kids, George, you must have had tough times with at least one of them, right? Every one of them. Come on. You know when I felt like I've been successful when each of the kids would come to me and say, "Look, I need my space. I need my own life. I need to live my own personal life." Then you've been successful. That means you've been in each each of their lives individually. When you when they said, "Look, I need my space." And I do that, and, I'm, and that's that's my success. To love your kids so much that it doesn't matter how many you have, you just get into each one of their heads, and they need space. How are you and Frida doing these days? Great. The best of friends. Frida now run, helps me periodically run the youth center in, in Houston. She's a business person. She wanted to be a boxer. You know, that drove me nuts for a while. She had a few boxing matches, and uh, I told her not to do it, but when she got tired of it, she stopped. Now she, she promoted boxing. What a wonderful person she's become. And how's Natalie's music career going these days? Natalie's fine. She's going to sing, she's going to sing, she's going to sing. I think there's a television show coming up uh, pretty soon. She's going to be singing on that show. So she's really happy about that. I, isn't that something? Oh, yeah. She does have a sweet voice. I'd love to get her CD, you know, whenever she comes out one of these days. That's great. And uh, now, listen, i got to ask you this question. Who's Mary and who's Joan, and how do they get along with each other? Mary and Joan get along fine, as a matter of fact. No split personalities here, but they got the same name. <laughs> My wife's name is Mary, but we crowned her with the name Joan. Her dad called her Joan, and I took it up, and everybody calls her Joan. Well, you talk about getting through the low times in your book, things like failed marriages. Oh. Uh, what would you say, though, George, You know, of, of all the, the whole life of George Foreman, what would be the toughest hurt you've had to get through? You know, something where you've actually had to rely on the creator of the world as opposed to the champion of the world, just to get through it all. Yeah, well, that divorce. You know, when you, uh, I was one of those persons, when you go before the preaching, you said, love, honor, and cherish, sickness, and health, better for worse, to death do we part. I, I really meant it. And uh, when, when your marriage is over, I just couldn't handle it. I, I needed God to help me. I've had to have God to step in on a few occasions just to really make give me the ability to just live. I'm telling you, uh, women, of course, go through divorce, and they can cry and tell everybody about it. But some of us men, we just bottle it up. We just bottle it up, and it, it could kill you. But I always said, if I, one time I was in the closet praying because I thought I was going to lose my mind. I kept crying. I thought my neighbor was going to hear me and call the people to put me away in a straitjacket. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I said, God, if you just help me through this, I will tell my story for young people. So that if they ever go through this, they can understand that you can help them as well. God did help me through that, and uh, so I constantly tell that story. And now you're telling the story. In the uh, latest release by George Foreman, God in My Corner, a spiritual memoir, and of course, his website has it all, folks, georgeforeman.com. It has been an absolute honor to chat with you today. Thank you so very much. Thank you, George. Take care. Like what you've heard? Listen again online at drewmarshall.ca.